0: Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us. It is a busy day. A bit later on in the show we are going to talk more about travel news. It is Wednesday that means we'll check in with Claire Newell. We're also getting that update from the Federal, uh, sorry, Provincial Health Minister Adrian Dix as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, giving us a bit of an update on COVID-19 vaccination numbers. Also what we are bracing for as far as heading into the cold and flu season. That's happening at one o'clock. We'll bring that To you live as soon as that gets underway. We are starting though with what is a sweeping announcement having to do with housing. This made by David Eby, who is running to lead the NDP and to be the next premier.
1: I know that going through the campaign process, being around the province and for municipal leaders, being around their community, hearing these stories, that when they go through that process, we're all going to be on the same page that the status quo can't continue. And my commitment to them. Uh, is to work with them to fix this. Uh, And my commitment to British Columbians is we are gonna work quickly, uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, And we'll be looking for those municipal partners who are willing to step up and work with us to deliver that housing. Uh, And we'll do that with those willing partners.
0: Let's bring in Richard Zussman. He is a global news reporter and is covering this, was asking questions at that news conference as well. Richard, thank you so much for being with us.
1: I haven't had a morning this busy in a long time, Jill. We've <laughs> rhymed off a few of them. We're getting ready for Minister Dix and uh, Dr. Henry at one. Minister Melanie Mark, the Tourism, Sport and Culture Minister, just resigned about 20 minutes ago for personal reasons. She's going on a medical leave. And then we have David Eby's massive announcement. We've been waiting for this NDP leadership race to take some life in terms of a conversation. And here it is in, in what is quite an interesting and game-changing housing policy announcement.
0: And will be, uh, you're absolutely right, should he win, which uh, he is, uh, I think, described as the front-runner by most, if not everybody. Let's go through some <laughs> of this, though. Uh, the flipping tax, and I know he was asked yeah. about this to put a number on it, and, and he said it wasn't about making revenue, it was about stopping people who were flipping homes just for profit. What do we know about what this might look like?
1: Yeah, so through the last few years, as we first saw the B.C. Liberals and the NDP apply new taxes around housing, there have been criticism around, you know, what does the foreign buyer's tax do? What does the speculation tax do? And does it actually address the core issue, which many believed was flipping? And this tax would do that. So let me walk through some of the bullet points provided by EB's campaign around how it would work. So it would apply on the sale of residential properties the tax rate would go down to zero the longer the property is held, and the tax would be highest for those who hold properties for the shortest period of time, and it phases out after two years. You know, they use some of the rhetoric around homes being for people to live in rather than for speculators, uh, but there also would be exemptions here for life circumstances. So if if a home, uh, you know, is, is seen as being flipped, because of death or an employment change or divorce, they'd be exempt. Builders are also exempted to encourage construction. Uh, You know, clearly there are a lot of pieces here. The big goal, rather than, as you alluded to, generate revenue, uh, is to provide stock for people to live in rather than be used as an investment, like a a product that increases values. We've seen in Metro Vancouver the value of these condos, townhomes and detached homes has grown and has been a good investment for many and flipping has been lucrative and that's why EB's camp here is trying to get you know flipping out of this as best as possible.
0: Did he mention or I don't know if he was asked about this because while he didn't put an actual number on what the flipping tax would be I was curious because there is already the capital gains tax if you're in a in a place for less than a year you're paying that tax would this be something that would be in addition to that?
1: Absolutely, it would be uh, based on the information I'm looking here. And the other part of this, and we've seen this on some of the NDP's housing taxes before, is all the revenues would then go back into building homes. So it would be an additional tax. A tax. So if you keep the home empty, if you flip it, you'll be paying those taxes, plus you'll be paying the capital gains tax on it as well.
0: All right. So that's the, the flipping tax that he talked about. He also, I know you asked him about the renters rebate that we've heard <laughs> promised, and it did. That was not part of this announcement. But what did he talk? What did he say about that?
1: Well, I'm known for asking multi-part questions, Jill, <laughs> which often gets politicians off the hook. So he only answered the first half of my question. I think uh, while I was listening over the line. This has been a controversial piece for the government. They have made this commitment on back-to-back elections. Uh, The time on Premier John Horgan's mandate is is running out because he says he's leaving as soon as a new leader comes in. So it's unclear whether we're going to get that $400 rebate. I tied it into a question also about, you know, why has David Eby not done these things while he was housing minister, right? He has served in this job now for two-plus years. He spoke to the pandemic and the work that was being done to address the crucial needs in a time of need during the pandemic. I think a lot of people have been caught off guard by the fact we've seen this you know, massive rebound in unaffordability over the last year as we sort of get out of the strictest COVID measures and the province was caught flat footed. And I think this is a way to get back running on this issue, which is clearly the number one issue in the province. So we're still uncertain about where we would end up with David Eby and a renter's rebate. You know, we know there's a lot of measures in here that would help support renter's Uh, But there's also a lot of questions I know internally within the NDP about whether that uh, rebate is the best way to address uh, the the shortfall that many people are feeling in terms of paying their rent.
0: All right. He also talked, and this was I thought was an interesting one, that he would make it so that... Every major urban center in the province, builders yeah. or home builders, they would be allowed to replace a single family home with up to three units, as long as it was on it was on the same footprint. But also that he would make secondary suites legal in every region of the province. That's a big shift.
1: It is. This part was really interesting to me. He didn't go as far. He was asked about this as well. Um, he has alluded to in the past. David Eby has as minister that if a municipality did not approve density the province would step in and approve it for them i still believe that is something david eb would like to do and is part of the ongoing work this government's doing now we have these other changes he's proposed if he becomes the premier that you alluded to that would start pushing things in that direction as well so right now it is complicated as many will know listening if they are to you know knock down a single family home Uh, or work with developers to do so in most cases it is complicated to get to three units in this case you would no longer need to go through that process the province would work with municipalities to figure out how to do this secondary suites in some communities i know vancouver is an exception but there are some municipalities still out there in this province who are trying to stop secondary suites the province would come in and say they are legal in every region of this province Another part of all of this is provincial permitting to make that more simplified, work with municipalities. And the last point of this I found really interesting, Jill, for many who live in stratas, is the province would remove any strata restrictions. So rental restrictions for a strata, age restrictions for a strata. There would still be some senior-only places to ensure that seniors have access to retirement communities, But that 19 plus restriction would be gone. So if a family, if a couple's living in a strata and they have a child, they won't be forced to move and find a new place. There's a lot of really interesting ideas here. Clearly, we know he's been a guy who's been thinking a lot about the housing file for the last decade, as long as we've seen David Eby in the public realm. Uh, And now we see, I'm guessing a lot of these ideas were ones that he tried to table at the cabinet table and probably had pushback. If he becomes premier, well, he has the carte blanche to do what he'd like to do, and and he'll have a mandate in order to do that if he becomes the leader.
0: All right, Richard, a a lot in that announcement. Thank you so much for joining us to break it down. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure as always, Jill. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, at this time, every Wednesday, we check in with Claire Newell, the founder and president of Travel Best Bets, to find out what's happening in the travel world. Good afternoon to you.
2: Hi there, Jill. Good afternoon. Um, I'm guessing you heard the entire travel industry give a huge (laughs) sigh of relief on Monday (laughs) when the federal government announced formally that they will be lifting all the remaining travel restrictions. Um, And it's been really interesting for me, Jill. I was away over over the weekend to California with my daughter. And when I came back and was driving to work, I heard you know, kind of mixed messages. Some people were not happy about these changes and others were ecstatic. So I don't think we're going to be able to please everybody. Um, But what I guess I was hearing was that some people felt like the government was kind of weak and should keep the mask mandate in place. Um, So it's just actually now going to be up to the individuals. So do you want me to go over um, specifically the the things that are going to change just so everyone's really clear on it, or sure. do you think we've had enough in the news? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, let's, uh, let's uh, go over it uh, because, yeah, it's a couple of days away from, from now when it goes into place. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder.
2: Yeah, it is. So it does go into effect on October the 1st, and the remaining travel restrictions that are being lifted for border entry, plane, train, and cruise ship travel in Canada – um, will include vaccine, quarantine, testing, masking, and then arrive. Can so um, specifically, people will not need proof of vaccination required to enter Canada, and there will be none of that mandatory testing or quarantine. Right now, it's ju- it, uh, you know up until October first, it's just random, but it was still kind of annoying for people if they got pulled out and were just expecting to grab their bag and go out of the airport. The other is. Um, unvaccinated foreign citizens can now enter the country without exemption. And the ArriveCan app is now going to be optional. One of the things that I will say about uh, the ArriveCan app, though, is that it, it, it will still be able to be used and I think quite convenient to submit digital customs declaration forms in advance. So for those who uh, who have it and didn't find it too cumbersome, that might be something that you, you do use um, because it's available at Vancouver Airport. It's also available in Toronto and Montreal and soon to be right across all of the large airports right across the country. But for many people that arrived, can was a huge barrier. I, I I have had many of our agents on our team say that there were older clients that they had that just did not want to travel until that was gone. So how um, does
0: will it work do you think then so if you are submitting your digital customs on the arrive can does that is yeah. it going to save you time then when you arrive?
2: yes, because you'll you'll get a QR code and you will then show that that code to the customs officials and um, if you have nothing to declare, you'll go straight through, which is really handy i mean they they still do their their random selections and and they'll still potentially question people, um, but normally it will be a faster process for the average person. And then the other thing, of course, is this: that masks will be optional. So the mask mandate is going to be lifted for Canadian airports and aircraft and on trains. So what the government is saying is that face coverings remain strongly recommended by public health officials during the journey. But if you are someone who really does not like to wear a mask and uh, that's now just really up to you. And it was interesting because when I was traveling to California, of course, I had to wear it through YBR and then on my Air Canada flight. And when I landed, I just was able to take it off as soon as I felt like I was kind of out of a crowd. And then coming back, same thing. As soon as I kind of hit the gate agent on my way home, that's when I put the mask on and boarded my flight and I wore it right through the whole the journey and through the airport again. So... I still really recommend that people double-check to see uh, what their airline policy is because Canadian airlines, you will not need to wear a mask, nor with U.S. airlines, but there are still airlines out there that may have that in place. And the same thing, um, just a reminder that the U.S. has not followed suit with Canada, so they have been slower at dropping certain restrictions than Canada has. You'll remember that we opened our land borders uh, faster than they did. So just keep that in mind, you must be fully vaccinated still to travel to the US. One of the other things that means is when you're boarding a cruise ship, you don't need to do the COVID test uh, if you are fully vaccinated and going on. So for any um, people who are doing last minute cruises, and I know that there's a lot of them because we've booked a lot of them, um, after October 1st, they won't have to do a COVID test um, if they are fully vaccinated before boarding. So that's uh, a big relief. And, and it will save money
0: for those people who are doing that. Right. And I'm glad you clarified that because we did get a few questions when we were talking about that. And I, I wasn't 100 percent sure if it was per the cruise uh, company itself or if it was an across the board rule. Right. Um,
2: and, and that is mainly because of the fact that the U.S. has not followed suit yet. So each cruise line has different policies, re- depending on where you're traveling to or from, like where your um, embarkation points are and disembarkation points are. So that's really, again, one of those things that's important to check with the cruise line specifically. Um, but I do know that for the Alaska cruises, the vast majority of them, if they are going around trip from
0: Vancouver, that COVID test will not be required as of October the 1st. All right, that is good to know. Some good news for people going on those cruises. Yeah, Also seeing a lot of people coming back and major Canadian airports seeing a lot of improvement. Oh, I was so glad to hear the latest reports that came out. We all know that it
2: was a really difficult summer and every week we're seeing that major Canadian airports are showing signs of improvement. So the latest numbers are for the week of September 12th to 18th. And I thought this was a great number. 98.5% uh, of flights planned for Canada's top four airports, so we're included in that in Vancouver, were completed, um, not cancelled, which is an improvement from 95% from the first week of July. That was kind of the thick of it. Um, now, it's pretty close to the week Uh, the similar week in 2019 pre-pandemic when 99% of flights for the top four airports were completed. Over 91% of flights from the top four airports also left on time or within one hour of their scheduled departure. That's a big improvement because um, that number was under 75% for the first week of July. So you can see where these improvements are happening. Um, and 90% of passengers at the four largest airports were also screened within 15 minutes by CATSA, the, um, uh, going, when you're going through the, the, the security portion, not customs, but security portion of the airport. And that's an improvement from 79% during the first week of July. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with those numbers. And every week
0: they're getting better and better, Jill. All right, that is good to hear. Uh, we also saw the uh, the Skytrax World Airline Awards uh, given out. How did Canada do?
2: Oh, <laughs> ha- they came out last Friday, <laughs> and I was so disappointed. So both Canada and the U.S. were completely you know, absent from the Skytrax list of top 20 airlines. I don't think it's a big surprise who was recognized with the, the top prize. It was Qatar. Some people say Qatar Airways. Um, it's a spectacular airline. They actually have won for the seventh time since the awards were introduced back in uh, 1999. But the remaining airlines, lots of um, Asian airlines. So Singapore Airlines is on there. Japan Air, Japan's ANA, ANA Air Nippon Airways, um, Japan Airlines itself, Korean Airlines, but also Emirates and uh, Qantas was on there. Turkish airlines. If you've never flown them, that's a treat as well. Uh, air France is on that list and Swiss international airlines also on the list. So uh, it's always interesting to see it changes just a wee bit depending on the year, but you can go online and just do a Google search of Skytrax world, world airline awards, 2022. If you want to take a look because they, um, they look at, uh, doing this survey, I think 14 million customer surveys are are accounted for in this. So it's a really good kind of overall look at the airlines and all sorts of categories from like the top overall, which I'm talking about, but also best staff and cleanliness and lounge and best airlines for each class of service. If you really want, you know that to know which is the best business class seat out there.
0: All right. Some very nice airlines for sure. Uh, Just before we get people to some deals, a couple of other stories. And this kind of goes back in that if people thought that all the restrictions everywhere had been loosened, not so, but we are seeing changes in places like Japan as well as Hong Kong.
2: Yeah. So these are really important changes because that part of the world has been very, very careful with um, their approach to their pandemic restrictions. And so, while in New York uh, last Thursday, Japan Prime Minister actually announced they're going to resume visa-free entry for individual travelers on October the 11th. They're also going to eliminate the daily capped number of visitors that. Um, I think it was set around 50,000 per day. And with these two changes, it's it really is um, getting back to, to norms for the first time in two and a half years there. However, just keeping in mind, visitors still have to be fully vaccinated to enter Japan. Um, and in Hong Kong, they've loosened their restrictions a little bit. <laughs> this will take effect. It actually took effect on September the 26th, but visitors from overseas no longer have to quarantine for those three days at a designated hotel that they actually had to pay for,
3: um,
2: but their movement is going to be limited for those first three days in Hong Kong, um, but they can not take public transportation, but they can't go into restaurants and bars and other businesses for the first three days. So really interesting, um, but it's starting, starting to to loosen up in those, that part of the world.
0: All right. Uh, what deals do you have for us today? Okay, I've got, um, the first
2: one I want to share was Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and this is for January 15th through until February 5th. I know it's not a big window, but if you can go during that time period, air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront, all-inclusive resort, 879 taxes of 603 There's a nine-night Caribbean cruise that I thought has a great itinerary. Um, it's Leaving April thirtieth, visiting places like Curacao, Aruba, Grand Cayman. It's a really nice itinerary. The nine night cruise, and a fifty dollar US onboard credit. Five hundred and sixty nine dollars taxes mm-hmm. of one seventy six. Um, Bali, Indonesia. So they opened up faster than other parts of Asia, um, and it's a real hot spot pre pre COVID. It was you know it was a really really popular destination getting back there so november the 5th through until march 23rd there are select dates where you can get a package that includes airfare 12 nights hotel breakfast every day a dinner sightseeing tour and transfers 12 nights is kind of what you need when you're going that far it's 1988 taxes of 420
0: wow that uh, does seem uh, what a great a great trip and uh, like you said opening up and getting back out there
2: yeah, it's going to be great. It's a slow process and it's just a reminder for anyone who is planning travel, no matter where you're going, look at the airline, what you're going to need. Are you going to need a mask? Or are you not? Look at the, the countries you're visiting. Um, each one has different types of restrictions and mandates. Unfortunately, there's no consistency, so you do need to check with people. Sherpa Travel, that website we've been talking about, but that will give you the information you need both going to a destination and coming back. It's Sherpa Travel. It's probably the number one email I get asked, or a website <laughs> I get asked for um, via email and, and text. So um, just want to say that one more time. Really important as things are kind of in
0: flux. All right. Uh, sounds good. Claire, as usual, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, we are going to talk more about what has been happening. As you know, we've been talking about random assaults and attacks. Uh, We're actually going to hear from one of the victims of one of those assaults a bit later on in the show. But right now, we're joined by Sarah Lehman, who is a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group, to talk more about the bail system and how this actually works. And Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, you've written a column about this, and people can read your columns in the Georgia Strait, but so timely and the way you're able to explain it, because I think, you, you, you touch on this in the column, we hear about these attacks, and then we hear about people that to have hundreds of encounters or incidents with police. We hear about people who have had multiple arrests, and there are these questions constantly as to why is somebody with that background not in custody? Why are they out? on the streets and and what can you talk about or what can you tell us about that and how the system works?
3: Sure. I mean, this is the question that a lot of people are asking about and reasonably so because it is troubling to think that offenders are just being caught by police and then subsequently released back into the community without any conditions or supervision or penalty. So I understand the concern that a lot of members of the public are having about this. But what we have to keep in mind is that the bail system is an integral part of our justice system. We have it in place for a reason. It is very fact-specific, and it is a very complex process. And it's there in order to preserve our core Canadian values, namely the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty.
0: Right. So do we kind of not jump to conclusions, but when you hear about somebody having a, a criminal past or, or having several convictions, does that change anything when then somebody is then back before the courts and a decision has to be made whether or not to grant them bail?
3: Sure. I mean, we're throwing around this term of prolific offender recently. Um, and I think that that is something that can weigh into the decision about whether or not a person should be granted bail. So, there will be considerations such as a person's you know past history or, or their compliance with conditions as ordered by the court in the past for example because if a person has been previously on court conditions and they demonstrated that they could not adhere to those conditions that's not going to weigh very favorably uh, with respect to their subsequent release again this time
0: does does the crowding in prisons or in um, in pretrial centers does that ever weigh into it in that there just simply isn't room to keep people that's not something that should be considered (laughs) strictly speaking we have to consider
3: um, other things such as the protection of the public the administration of justice we have to also consider competing interests such as a person's right to liberty right so that would involve the accused person's right to liberty um, and how we're also going to make sure that the accused person continues to engage with the system and doesn't just flee, you know, or abandon the charges. So those are some of the considerations that are taken into account at a bail hearing. But every single one is so fact specific and driven by the individual circumstances of that case and that accused person before the court.
0: You talked about conditions and how somebody can be released with conditions. Uh, they could be things such as uh, not to consume alcohol, not to have any weapons, maybe not to contact certain people. How much are they enforced, though, or how confident can the public be that even when somebody is released with those conditions, there there are, is law enforcement and there is enforcement to make sure they follow them?
3: Well, I mean, we can never be certain 100% of the time that people are going to follow the conditions they're released on. Uh, Conditions are very helpful, though. They're a great tool to try to make sure that a person can be granted their right to liberty and their right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, while also protecting people in the public and the public at large. If a person isn't able to or doesn't comply with their conditions and they wind up back in custody then the chances of them being released again are marginal. So each time a person demonstrates that they're not willing to comply with bail conditions, the chance of their release goes down, generally speaking, of course.
0: Right. And I guess that's just where where we tend to see or when we hear about these random assaults in some cases or uh, shoplifting and, and such when and then, when we hear that somebody has so many convictions or or again uh, incidents with police, it just uh, you can you can hear the public frustration because it does seem that there are not a lot of repercussions for these crimes
3: absolutely and I completely understand the public frustration with something like this when we hear these horrifying stories about random stranger results, we want to find a way to stop this and to end it because Quite frankly, I am just as sick of seeing this as everybody else can be. So I think it's important for us to keep in mind, though, that the justice system is there for a reason. And these principles have been in place for a long time. So an increase in violence that we're seeing, I really don't think we can blame it squarely on the justice system or the bail system specifically. I think we have to look at other factors that are at play here and not just place our blame in this one institution.
0: Right. And that's what we hear often from police as well, saying that we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem or out of these issues. So what do you see then as the reasons or the contributing factors to the increase in these attacks, in the property damage and what we're seeing on the streets?
3: I think that we're just seeing so many things coming together here at a critical juncture. I mean, we're still dealing with a fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a housing crisis that's leading to an increase in homelessness. We have a toxic drug supply issue that's not going away. Uh, and we also have an issue here with an overburdened healthcare system, which is a huge problem because so many people who require support to the healthcare system and specifically mental health support are not receiving it. And so I think that all of these things are leading to the perfect storm and we're seeing it culminate on our streets.
0: Is it more of a stress then as well for the the justice system? Like you said, we can't blame it solely on the bail system and say that that it's not keeping people who should be locked up locked up. Then is it is it causing more stresses then when we're seeing these issues that are not being dealt with and we're seeing people that are then swept up in the justice system? I think that we have to say that it would have an impact on the justice system. You know, I
3: can't refer to any specific statistics or anything like that, but I think that just common sense would say that an increase in crime rates uh, will lead to an increased strained on the justice system, and it's already strained enough. So we need to find solutions.
0: And every time we talk about this, uh, we inevitably get people calling or emailing saying it's time to open up Riverview or something like Riverview, that there needs to be more supports and more more attention paid to mental health and why it is that we're seeing the increase in this level of violence. Do you think that would be a good, a good step? Well, I think that it's important to keep in mind that harm reduction only goes so far and that
3: there has to be some type of rehabilitative steps that we take as a society or as a community to help people get out of the cycle of addiction. And perhaps that would look like some court-ordered conditions. Um, I know people don't like to talk about you know, um, forced treatment or mandated treatment. But in some cases, I think it could assist in helping a person break the cycle of addiction and help them get out of a life of criminality.
0: Because we do see that in other jurisdictions. I know people often talk about the system in Portugal, but even, even that as part of that system is it's not, I mean, it's kind of forced in that you get the choice. You can either go to jail or you can go into a rehabilitation program and and, and try and go that route. And I know uh, there certainly have been, been conversations about that, that, that clearly what we're doing isn't working. So maybe we should try something like that.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's a really great example from the international community. Portugal had a horrible problem with toxic drug supply, mental health issues and criminality, and they were able to address it using this novel method. Um, I don't think that anybody wants to criminalize addiction. I think what's important to emphasize is that we need adequate supports on multiple levels in our communities to make sure that people who are struggling with addiction issues or severe mental health issues end up you know, not committing crimes, not offending. They get the support and the help they need before that happens.
0: All right. Sarah Lehman, as always, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about the column and uh, the issues that we're seeing uh, with the justice system right now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.